Welcome to Stocks into the Loan, episode 5. My name is Micah Utrecht. And I'm R.L. Stevens. Bringing you a little late, a little tardy. This episode's like a fine wine. Gotten better with time. <laughs> We're long past the, the point where most people offered you their uh, hot takes about Get Out. And everyone had one. Everybody. Uh, but we've, we've got one. We, we, we had to let it cool off a little while here. We, yeah, you heard us talking it about it a couple episodes ago. And it's probably been like almost two months since we recorded this day. It's it's one of my favorite episodes so far. It's because it's Micah's time to shine. Your boy Micah came through with the hottest take. <laughs> Micah called me immediately after he saw this movie like, I got the hottest take. <laughs> I hadn't even seen the movie yet. Okay, so this is how hype this man was about this. So there's no way in hell, I don't care how late it is, nobody, there's no way in hell that we are not letting this take air. There's a, a little more hype than I'm usually comfortable with. <laughs> I think I think his Michigan modesty is like <laughs> kicking in. Hello. Nope. <laughs> what was that? We're keeping this. We're keeping this as the intro. So we've uh, both in the last couple weeks seen a movie everybody's talking about right now. Get out. Uh, everybody's got takes. I've been avoiding them for the most part. I have take fatigue. Okay, <laughs> it's a, it's actually a condition. It's in the. I've seen some takes, man. Just, <laughs> yeah. can't, it's in the DSM four. Uh, take fatigue. It's real. So I avoided most of them actually before I saw the film, and I've just been like soaking them in in the weeks since. So many people have takes about this movie. It's sort of indicative of this trend on the left that's been happening for what a decade or two at this point, right? Where the, the take is the is the means of politics. Real politics is you you see a work of art, whether it's a movie or a TV show or or a Migos album, and you give <laughs> your like left spin on it and that is doing good politics. The thing is is that the takes exist in an industry. As as do mo- most things that we create. Part of the problem is that we don't actually spend much time understanding what Adolf Reed and others termed the culture industry. Yeah, it's not bad, just the act of creating a take. But when you begin to think that the act of interpreting the world is the same as making the world, then you do a disservice to political movement. Cultural criticism itself is not bad. That's not what we're saying. We're saying that the the industry of media takes, and not just in the in media, but also the takes within academia too. And there's often like a cross-pollination there. They're, produ- they're warping our sense of what, what is political. And so mere interpretation has become politicized in a way where people think that that's all you have to do. But, you know, Adolf Reed talks about in one of his books in, in Class Notes about how throughout much of the 80s and 90s, the left was losing politically. And it's pretty depressing to be losing all of the time. Part of the turn towards the takes, towards cultural interpretation and and towards assigning that kind of interpretation strong political significance was that you know you give a take of a movie or a madonna album or amigos album or whatever it is it's not as depressing you're not feeling like you're losing every day in the way that you would be if you were organizing a union i remember talking to people like yo look you have to understand the political limitations of this stuff because there are no stakes for real now let's go back to a film that we understood, like we understand today as having real stakes, like Birth of a Nation, right? So if I'm black in 19 whatever, whenever that came out, would I rather have a hot take about Birth of a Nation or a shotgun? Give me the gun, okay? <laughs> That's because W.B. Du Bois, 
Ida B. Wells, they were like, I got the shoddy in case these crackers want to try me. They weren't out here like looking for a hot take about birth of a nation to be the thing to save people. That's not what was, that's not how it worked. They needed real power. And like we've gotten to a point where we would literally think that hot takes about birth of a nation would have done something. Like that was the proper intervention rather than understanding that like this is a question of power and that birth of a nation only had its impact because there was an there was there was an array of social mechanisms to to actually create the conditions for their bloody summer of nineteen or the red summer of nineteen nineteen. In Robin D. G. Kelly's classic book Hammer and Ho, he has in the introduction that thing where he's visiting this uh, black, I think former sharecropper out in a shack somewhere in Alabama, and he asks the share former sharecropper, you know, how did you guys organize and the sharecropper points up at the wall and there's a picture of Lenin on the wall. And then he pulls out this box of shotgun shells and he's like, theory and practice. <laughs> you know, he points to Lenin. Lenin's the theory. The shotgun shells are the practice. Theory and practice. I mean, and we've lost track of that, I think. Yeah. All right. So cultural criticism, it's important, but the stakes are not as high as some people would lead you to believe. Be that as it may, we do have some takes <laughs> about <laughs> Get Out. <laughs> You have actually what I consider to be one of the hottest takes <laughs> I've ever heard uh, on any, any, hold on. My man just took off his uh, hoodie and I just realized he hot. had a plaid shirt on again. This man. is my ethnic garb. Man. I don't know what you're talking about. Anyway, you have the hottest take on Get Out that I've ever heard. All right. Well, first of all, we should establish we're about to drop some spoilers to this. Movie. Oh yeah, so spoilers. If you haven't seen it yet and you and you want to, you need to go see it to fully appreciate what I'm about to the knowledge I'm about to drop the take I'm about to drop on you. But uh, hold on, hold on. Just so that the listeners know, my man is at like a bulletin board with uh, with a bunch of pictures. One of Jordan Peele, one of uh, Chris from the movie, and a bunch of like strings and pins connecting them together. Like his hair is like. Just frazzled. He hasn't showered in days. That's like that's that's the man that There's you're like. Jordan Peele, like Bayard Rustin, <laughs> <Yeah>. like <laughs> the Memphis 1968 sanitation strikers. The man has a whole thing worked out here. That's the that's the image that you need to have in your mind as you listen to this take. Okay. All right. So check this out. Well, folks have said all kinds of things about this movie, right? It's about. Uh, white liberal racism, the the kind of microaggressions that white liberals are always doling out. Um, it's about in the, in the you know interracial dating. It's about like uh, white people believing that like black people have this essence that they're trying to capture or whatever. Probably because they lead these you know useless and meaningless and empty lives, and so the black people have the actual like the essence, the real you know stuff of life. No, all wrong. This movie is about the need for strong public sector unionized workforces to... <laughs> Why are you laughing? <laughs> I'm sorry. Continue, continue, continue. The role of a strong public sector unionized workforce in combating racism. Because who's the main character to who you? Is, okay, we think that Chris is the main character, right? The guy who gets hypnotized. Yeah. It. The main character of this movie is his best friend, the guy who you is don't even know his name. Agent. You don't even know all I know is that he's a working class hero. That's all I know. <laughs> That's all you need to know. 
What is his name? I don't know. Oh, no, That's no, like no. the movie. Should I look up his name? Nope. The fact that you don't know his name is even funnier. I'm not concerned with trivialities like his <laughs> name because I'm more concerned about his position in history. Okay. <laughs> so Chris is the one who most of the movie revolves around. They're trying to get him, you know, into the basement and the and sunken place. The sun- they, they want to hypnotize him, get him to the sunken place so they can. You know, get the white people in his brain or whatever. And he is waging valiant battle against these forces, right? He's like stabbing dudes with antlers. He's like knocking people <laughs> he out. He killed with... somebody with a bocce ball. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> he's he's, he's uh, fighting with the, the mom. Uh, you know. With the letter opener straight yep. through his palm. On some so Terminator he, shit. He is waging some real valiant struggle against these people. At the end when he's on the road with the rifle. That stuff's wild. No one would say that my man is not fighting hard, right? He's he's waging some valiant struggle. But if he had not been saved at the last minute by the unionized public sector black worker rolling up in state property in the TSA car, what, what would have happened to him? What he never he could not have survived. Where would he have gone? He would have been stuck out in the woods. But now, how do you explain? When that same character, who you believe to be the main character, p- portrayed by uh, Laurel Howery, how do you explain what the other black state uh, employees did when he went to ask them for help? Right, help so what is going on there? Is, it's actually very, it's, it's nuanced. Uh-huh. Pierre Bordeaux used to talk whoa, about... Whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> Brace yourselves for this take. All right, he's got the strings out. <laughs> He's got the pins and the strings. All right, go. Hit him with it. <laughs> Pierre Bordeaux used to talk about uh, the, 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 the state is not some kind of monolith, right? There's like the right hand and the left hand of the state. The left hand of the state could be social services like in European countries or Canada, like uh, publicly uh, funded free health care or in the United States, like public education that's free. Uh, and that's the left hand of the state. And the right hand of the state was the prisons and the military and the police. So our man, the TSA agent, goes to the right hand of the state. Right? He, we don't. I don't really know where we classify a TSA guard <laughs> specifically. Right hand, left hand. Bordeaux's theory maybe didn't quite encapsulate. I don't know where Bordeaux would have put the TSA agent. Is what I'm telling you, but. He goes to the right hand of the state. He goes to the police officers in the movie, right? And they're not even like some cracker ass police officers. They're all people of color. He talks to the black woman police officer. He lays out the scenario. This is what's happening. My friend needs help. And what does she do? Laughs at him. Laughs at him. Not only laughs at him, calls in the other police officers, has him tell the story again. And again, they're they're all police officers of color. They they should be if we're we're thinking in terms of racial solidarity. They should be you know backing him up on this stuff. No, the right hand of the state just laughs at him. He's he's on some other shit. He's he's just talking nonsense. Boo boo the fool. So the only thing there is left to do is for the unionized black public sector worker to take measures into his own hands, protected no doubt by his union contract. <laughs> Oh, this take is actually. I'm on board now. I listen. How, you if you can't if you don't have a union, you can't just get you up can't and just your steal job. company you property yeah. and just go. Oh, this is okay. I was not on board, but now you sold me because that reminds me of that. Uh, what was it, Yale? Where the brother? Okay, all right. I thought I thought this was I thought this was a crazy take, but now <laughs> live on Stockton Tomb alone, I am converted. 
because the brother at uh, at Yale took a broom. He was a he was a custodian. He took a broom and destroyed the stained glass window of the slave master. And not only did he not go to jail, my man kept his job. <laughs> Why? Because unite here, the union. They came through. They came through. It created the foundation for him to fight racism. It would have been a beautiful thing if that guy had taken that step and smashed that window and he got fired. It would have sucked. But we would have been like, this dude is valiant. This dude is brave. He's, he did this shit. He struck a blow against racism. That might make you feel good to strike a blow against racism. But you need the institutional mechanism to back you up to, to allow you to carry out that struggle. Which I'm was, a soul! <laughs> which is the same thing that happened with this dude. He gets, he gets to take his time off. He shows up to rescue Chris in the, the TSA... Uh, in his in his uniform, he's got the car. He's got everything. I'm you so think he would have done that if he didn't have a union. He knew that he could call up his union rep that would protect <laughs> him if the boss called him out. Like the, the we live in a, a a society where you can get fired for the color of your tie. Like if he had been found out that he took the TSA car to to go rescue his friend in the woods who was from being, rich white folks. Like they would have been like, I don't care why you took it. Like you're out of here. No, he knew the union rep had his back. <laughs> That's what allowed This is the hottest take. You know what? When we started this segment, I was... I didn't believe. I'm making believers over here. Woo! This is a hot take. I love this. Is there any more? I mean, the floor is yours. It's... What? Show us more. So it's a, it's a parable that, of course, uh, like our man at Yale, confronting racism, striking blows against racism, whatever is necessary... But we also need these kinds of institutional mechanisms and both a union to protect you when you get in trouble for, uh, for striking these blows against racism. And in a broader sense, this kind of social democratic public investments that create public sector workforces uh, are also necessary. So you need social democratic investment to create those kind of jobs. You have to fight against privatization. If his job had been privatized, what would have happened to Chris? The TSA agent's job gets privatized. And there's no union. There's no union, or, or, or maybe there is And there are no cars. Is, they probably wouldn't even have cars if it were privatized. Yeah, they would have been like old and run down, and he would have been screwed. Chris would have been toast, and that would have been the end of the movie. And when he shows up to the dirt road in the middle of nowhere, and Chris is you know fighting for survival, and we think he's about to get shot by a cop, but it's actually his friend, the TSA agent. Chris gets in the car... And what does he say? He's like, you know, how did I forget what Chris says? How did you, you know, you know, whatever, whatever. He says, like, how did you get here? How did you know? How did you... And he's just like, he pauses, right? And he's like, I'm the TS motherfucking A. Like, it's like, <laughs> he's like, I am a public sector worker. This is just what we do. <laughs> Social democratic investments in society produce heroes like me. <laughs> That's what I heard. <laughs> I don't know what you heard when he said that, but I heard public sector workforce, they're heroes. You converted me. I'm, I'm on board. Now, here's the thing, though. I, did, I think it would have been a better movie if the real cops had shown up and killed it. Well, that was what you were expecting. In the end. Yeah, then it would have had stakes and it would have been like that. Because to me, the scariest part of the movie is when he gets stopped on the road by the cop. I think it, it, people. Some people say it's a ridiculous movie. I thought it was a great movie. I mean, like, I would definitely like feeling 
tense when that cop stops him, you know. I'm yeah, like, but uh, that's when, but that's, that was racism in reality. Right. And I would have liked it if they said, okay, with all this fantasy about white folks stealing your brain and stuff, all right. But the reality is racism in your day-to-day life is what's actually scary. Oh, that's That would have been a much better That's true. concept. But like, and that was the issue for me was like, and I know you're not with me on this, this take, but. Maybe you'll sell me. Like, hey, yeah, you sold me. So there's hope. When I was watching it, like there was, there were some really hang loose threads that were, I just didn't understand. So you, you said that he fought valiantly against racism, right? And was killing a white folk with bocce balls and whatever. For me, like the that... very symbols of how like, <laughs> yeah. you can't get much whiter than the, the antlers ball. on the wall and the bocce ball. And letter you openers. No, that was perfect. Black people yeah. don't use letter <laughs> openers. Okay. I guess that... <laughs> Okay. Uh, so, but my thing was like, all right, that scene bothered me actually because not because of some like I'm ultra woke, but like because it just didn't make sense to me because the the central tension in the film or one of the central ideas was about gen- black like a genetic basis of race. So the, all the white characters were tossing that around. They were also talking, tossing around some cultural stuff too. But like, um, but really, there was this thread out there about is there a genetic essence to blackness that makes it unique or makes it different or whatever. That's what the family's whole program is predicated on. That yeah, there is this genetic basis too? Yeah, uh, there are these comments like when the son comes in at the dinner and he's asks him, "Oh, have you seen? Uh, uh, do you watch MMA?" And then he goes on about how like, "Oh, you have the genetics to be." A fighter yourself. And then he says, you know, you, you have the physique that, like, if you really apply yourself, you could be a beast. And, like, so this idea of, like, this bestial stereotype around black men in particular was, like, this this subtext. Well, that well, wasn't even subtext. subtext. Yeah. That was explicit. Like, in the garden party where people are, you know, they, they make explicit reference to his dick. They yeah. They're talking about, okay, they're All like of this feeling his arm, stu- right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. All of this bestial stuff is part of the film, right? And part of, like, how the white people per- perceive him. So then what does he do at the end of the movie? Out of nowhere, he becomes a Terminegro. <laughs> Out of absolutely nowhere. This is a mama's boy. Okay? He crying through the He's whole movie. He's a photographer. Movie. He's a photographer. Exactly. He's a photographer and a mama's boy. Okay? And then... He just gets out the chair. He picks cotton. Okay? <laughs> the man picks cotton and becomes a Terminigro. Okay? Okay? All right? Because, all right, if you haven't seen the movie, at the end of the film, <laughs> this man gets out of, he, it's so heavy-handed. The man's strapped into a I chair. I didn't think about the cotton See, thing they, Oh, I'm going to tell you some more shit then. I'm going to blow that mind in a second. The man is strapped into the chair, right? He sees it frayed, and he literally picks the cotton out of the chair in order to survive. Like, because he puts the cotton in his ears so he can't hear the hypnosis. And that's how he makes it. Which is, like, a metaphor. For the slave what? experience. What the- because black people had to pick cotton in order to survive right, their slavery. But- that's the illusion. Okay. Okay. But here's, it gets deeper. Because when he escapes, he smacks the dude with the bocce ball, but he doesn't die. After he goes upstairs and the son, who got hit by the bocce this ball, This is like reconstruction. Back. He... He, him with the ball. <laughs> he was down. You should have. You should have killed him when he was down. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so that was so good. So the son runs upstairs and tries to grab him after Chris had rebelled. Right. So what happened to rebellious slaves? 
they got sold down south to places like Mississippi. So the son puts the guy in a chokehold, and what does he start doing? He starts whispering in his ear, one Mississippi, two Mississippi. It's so corny! What is this? Okay, you didn't even register. That didn't even register. <laughs> I did not see? <laughs> see? See? Okay, this shit was corny. All right? And he, but he, okay. So again, returning to the idea of the bestial nature or the bestial essence of blackness. Like, he took a letter opener through the hand and ain't flinched. Well, okay, listen. I think, who knows what any, even a soft photographer mama's boy, is probably capable of quite a bit when he's fighting for his life. But the fun, but you're pointing out the bestial piece of it makes me realize that it's all predicated on uh, him having these, they all think he's got the huge cock and the, you know, he's he could be a fighter, a he could be a beast, he's got these huge muscles, And he becomes whatever. it! He, but he never, there's never any kind of pushback against that narrative. Uh, that's it, right, it gets that's what I'm saying. There there, he, like, he, his acts prove the white people right yeah. in, the, in the context of the narrative. So I'm like, what? Like, that's why he should have been killed at the end. Then, that would have at least been more provocative in some way, like that Okay, because that's the history of the United States. That's like when when we outlaw drugs, like part of the justification for it is that the cocaine crazed Negro is unstoppable. The 38 Special can't bring him down. 16 shots from the, th- you know, that's how they were talking about him in the New York Times and in all this press. The, the idea of like, the cops being the thing to like protect whiteness away from the bestial, like out of control. That okay. Well, he, that would have been a little politically obvious. That would have been a little. It still would have been. It, I mean, everything else was. He picked cotton and got superpowers. Okay, essentially. I I don't know. That's the standard. All right, that's the movie we're dealing with here. Most of the commentary that I heard was that it was about interracial dating, and it really wasn't. What do you mean it wasn't about interracial dating? Because they didn't have a relationship. Like it wasn't actually about a relationship. I don't know. I bought it in the beginning when they're how at did they his meet? apartment. Well, we don't know how they met. Oh, uh, exactly. This is not a movie. Well, you can't fill in all of the plot details. <laughs> but they're in his apartment, and you know they're like snuggling on the couch or whatever, and they're kissing each other. They seem like I bought that they were actually in. Yeah, a but like she was either brainwashed since she was a child to be the siren for <laughs> black people to lure them to the plantation. Or, like, she was doing it of her own volition. She was never actually connected to him in any way. And we don't even know anything about, like, the backstory. It wasn't actually about their relationship. That was just a plot device for, like, bringing people to the space. Which is, must that could be the point. Like, that could be a point that the movie is making, right? That this relationship between a black... Like, the black person thought he was actually in a relationship with this white person, but the white person was just trying to pull the wool over. So, the, yeah, the idea there, the implication would be that, therefore, no black or white people could have relationship, reciprocal relationships. Then Stockton Sumo alone wouldn't exist. <laughs> Checkmate, you, Jordan Peele. I'm doing this podcast because I want to steal your essence. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm in the second place. Save me. Oh, my God. Save me. No. <laughs> He wasn't ready. No. So you had mentioned to me also that you uh, have seen a bunch of takes about this movie that are about uh, the, about trauma. Right? Yeah, right. Like there was one take um, at uh, ComingSoon.net. This was this was deep. The title of this thing is "How Get Out Made Me Afraid of White People." What, brother? Where you been? Get out. 
In 2017? Made you afraid of white folk? I didn't know what white people were capable of <laughs> yeah. until I saw Get Bruh, out. bruh. When we sat in the theater to watch Get Out, the first thing I thought, I looked around the theater, I was like, man, a crazy white man could come in here and kill everybody. I've been on, on edge, on high alert with white folk. You're on orange alert. <laughs> Orange alert. We white folk. Okay, where this? Where has this brother been? And so then he um he goes in on all this stuff that where he's just like, oh my god. When I was leaving the theater, I was I was I was looking around. I was they were gonna attack me. I was like, what? Setting aside like that, you know, whatever. This is one guy writing something, and he, you know, whatever his idiosyncrasies are. The reason why it makes sense in the industry of takes, you know. Is because there's this uh, trend of, of like hyper trauma, you know, like uh, of of. It's almost like an infantilization of right? black people in particular, but a, a lot of different types of people. Like there have been articles that have come out that have said like, "Oh, don't tag me in posts about racism on social media." What's the impact of this, right? The impact was like when Alton Sterling got killed, right? Alton Sterling was in Louisiana, so when he got killed, there were white people coming up to me like, "Are you okay?" How are you dealing? It's like, what? And in my head, like, I knew they were, like, well-meaning and stuff. But in my mind, I was like, my grandfather was born in 1903. My dad slapped the fuck out of a white boy in a tobacco field in 1961 and thought he was going to have to flee his town like his older brother did in in rural North Carolina because white folk would lynch you. I'm okay like with a video like I know that racism's bad and that it can affect people psychologically but like this idea of this performative element around trauma where I'm supposed to act aggrieved in, in a certain way to elicit comfort from especially particularly white people that's the role they're supposed to play is to comfort me when I'm so distraught by like the reality like the mere existence of racism in the world and I'm like what? This is, what is this, you know? And so NPR had a, had a series on Chicago, uh, on school kids in, on, the, on the south and the west side. And I remember one particular set piece of it was this kid who was a high school, like maybe junior or so, who was talking about how he couldn't leave his house because of the violence on his block, because you could be killed just by being outside, and how he did not leave for years and how depressed he was because he could not live a life as a teenager, okay? That's trauma to me, you know? Like, so merely watching the movie or seeing a, a killing, okay, these are disturbing things, yes. But there's this trend, this, like, performative traumatization that, like, dis- does a discredit to the actual stakes. Not, but Because when you tie trauma to consuming content, rather than like life, <laughs> you trivialize the injuries that actually exist for people. I've been in situations that have been really shitty because I've been black. And yes, they affect my psyche. But I'm not gonna say that that was the same as merely seeing some video. Like the Zapruder film, fuck me up. What and is the Zapruder, Zapruder film? film is not even about race. JFK, when JFK gets shot in the head. They showed us that in uh, eighth grade I couldn't sleep for two days, okay? It's disturbing. Anytime you see violence, it's disturbing, usually. But the industry around the takes has taken up that discomfort and incentivized this performance of it over and over. It's ritualized it. And that's what this take about, like, being afraid of white people after seeing this movie, he don't believe that for real. 
I, I just, I can't. Maybe he does. I don't know. But, yeah. like, it only makes sense within the context of this industry. Not to mention it's just such a political dead end. Like, you think that the civil rights protesters who were facing down the dogs and the fire hoses, like, weren't afraid of white people? Like, of course they were. Then <laughs> they had real good reason to be because right. they were about to sick some dogs on them. But they, instead of saying, like, oh, these, these people and these southern white people are so mean and so racist, like... They they went out and got in their face and fought it back against them and they weren't. But you can't fight a movie like that. That's real. Like you can't. Fight. The takes don't create a situation where you can actually do something political. Segregation was scary, and you can talk about the feelings of what it's like to live in a segregated society. My dad, it fucked my dad up. Like my dad had, he had to get off the sidewalk anytime a white person was there, and so that had a psychological toll on him. So it did that. So it's real, but like there are ways that you could actually fight that stuff by fighting against discrimination and segregation as policy. You can't fight like the presence of videos on the internet. So like the the mission to like use media to say don't tag me in these things that becomes the act. Don't tag, rather than a good white anti racist. Yeah, doesn't tag. Doesn't tag you. Doesn't Which doesn't repost. That, yeah, that they don't you know? talk about the actual racist stuff right. that's going on. Which is insane. Like I agree, we shouldn't merely talk about it, but we need to actually deal with reality. And the takes usually aren't really getting us there. They're about denying reality or merely interpreting it. For in an endless loop. But in the case of the one that you're talking about, it's like, you know, sort of uh, stepping away from reality because reality is just too much. It's a little <laughs> too scary. Yeah. And like, or they, that's what he had been doing before. And this is his first realization that reality exists. <laughs> like, that's fine. I, I mean, I think a lot of this stuff has gotten out of hand where you got, you know, the safety pin box, which... The instructions in the safety pin box are about how to consume media. That's like one of the big instructions that white people are supposed to pay $100 to like receive. So, you know, that is, that's where we are and it's kind of, kind of bizarre. Well, there's also this interview that Jordan Peele did with Terry Gross on Fresh Air on NPR. She's asking him about the scene in the garden party where he is one of two black people who are at this party, but there are the black people on the premises who are the quote-unquote help, right? The uh, the woman who does stuff around the house and the guy who is chopping the wood and stuff. And she asks him if he's ever been in a party like that. And he says yes, and they talk about it a little bit. And then she asks him, well, what about the class dynamics of that? She asks him specifically about the black service workers and asks if he felt any kind of solidarity with them or whatever and he says yes that he has been that lone black person at those kind of events uh, and that yes he does feel that kind of camaraderie that kind of solidarity or whatever with the service workers and then she pushes him though again says what about the class element there do you feel like there's anything off in that interaction and he says basically no that uh his experience is that race trumps class every time and I'm thinking, like, okay, maybe there's some level of solidarity that you feel with the black wait staff or whatever. But, like, maybe we should ask the people who make, like, one three-hundredth of what you make to see if they feel, like, any class resentment. And I think that's a really interesting anecdote because that explains, like, a lot of what I found to be so troubling about the film politically is because there were a lot of race essentialist 
threads that weren't actually subverted. So it doesn't surprise me that he would have that perspective. It benefits the elites, though, black or white. Um, because it creates this idea that there, it flattens the um, inequality within the race, which allows token, not only tokenization, but a sort of like representational turn where an elite black person is somehow representative of all black people and you don't have to actually redistribute anything. All you got to do is go give them dap or whatever. All the system has to do is create a single opportunity for that chosen one. And that's supposed to be enough for the ma- black masses who are supposed to identify with that chosen black, you know, messianic type person who achieves on their behalf. We're a little late on the game here, but we have brought you, we saved the best takes for last. You I mean, I, the brother converted me. I'm a believer now. This movie was about public sector unionism. <laughs> and it's not, to be clear, it's not about some like class over race shit. It's about saying that you need these class based vehicles as a basis from which you can fight racism. See, Jordan Peele thought he was making this Afro pessimist movie, but did, he didn't know that he was actually making a Jacobin approved <laughs> class politics first, <laughs> brocialist movie. <laughs>